Our reading today is from Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome and Happy New Year. Those of you who are here, those of you who are online, we're glad that you're with us. We have been starting off our year by looking at some of the core values of our church. We saw last week that one of our great values is that Toronto be changed spiritually through the spread of the gospel. We treasure evangelism and mission because people who do not have Jesus are lost, disconnected from God morally and personally and possibly eternally. This week we want to talk about another of our values that we treasure, and that is mercy and justice. Jesus in this parable shows us that at the core of the gospel is the call to the Jericho Road. At the core of the gospel is love that is expressed through mercy and through justice. Now, in our culture today, there is a war of words over the meaning of that word justice. And this is not the place to have that conversation. We hope to have that conversation later this spring in an extended seminar. But the intriguing thing about Jesus here is he doesn't use any of that language when he uses this story. He frames it in a simpler, more profound, may I say, more unsettling way. Jesus says it's about love. The great commandment is brought to play here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, even if he is your enemy, whoever they may be. And that's where the edge to this parable comes in. Because Jesus, in telling this parable about loving your neighbor, reveals that what passes for mercy and justice in our hearts and in their hearts is the same thing. It's often a convenient kind of activity 
that's done as much for our own sense of self and our reputation as anything else. It's not gospel love. Too often it's self-righteous posturing. In the earlier days of Grace Toronto, we were trying to raise funds for a wheelchair for a woman who had lost her ability to walk or even breathe properly, and so we needed a special wheelchair not covered by OHIP. So I went to some people I met looking to raise funds, one of whom inhabited a C-suite position in one of our major banks. And I asked him, would your bank be willing to help with this? We just need fifteen or $16,000. Surely you can do something. And he looked at me, and with a kind of resigned, wry smile, he shook his head. He says, no, no. Our bank, in fact, none of the banks I know actually would do charity in that small, private way. All of our charitable work and giving is big public stuff that we can use for public relations and marketing. I'm not proud of that, but it is what it is. Mercy was used for marketing, and the banks are not alone. My neighborhood app is filled with people telling me all the ways in which they are virtuous, all their posts extolling, their recycling, their composting, their advocacy for volunteering and cycling. So is my social media, so is yours. People doing virtuous and charitable deeds and telling the world, those are not bad things, those things. They're admirable, but that's the point. They're admirable, so they're publicized so that we can be admired. But when you're alone at night, and the place you're in is a dangerous place, and you see a need that stopping to help will put you in danger, and nobody is there to see you or critique you, what are you tempted to do? That's what Jesus asks of us. I know what I'm tempted to do. I'm tempted to do just what the banks do, to be charitable, to be seen, but not to be charitable when it's dangerous or when it's costly. And so Jesus, in this story that is so well known, invites us to look ourselves in the mirror and ask two questions. Where am I in this story? And where is Jesus in this story? And Jesus invites us to ask those questions by pushing us. And he pushes us by asking a question first. And the first question he asks is, what is the scope of your love? What is the scope? We open this passage with a verbal sparring match between Jesus and a lawyer. (laughs) Never happened. I used to uh, understand lawyers a little better. And we never had sparring matches. There's a considerable audience. Jesus had been forgiving immoral people. He'd been eating food on the Sabbath he's not supposed to, dining with cheats and thieves and prostitutes, and telling religious leaders they were opposing God by making religious regulations too hard for people to follow. Jesus seemed to fit into a category, one of those slackers. I'm going to make the laws of God easier for people. So the lawyer wants to test Jesus. He asked Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus returns the question with a question, how do you read the law? The lawyer quite precisely, quite accurately repeats the law. 
He repeats the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elochenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've done well. Do this and you will be saved. He affirms the law in all of its rigor. He doesn't soften it an inch. The rabbis, the rabbinical tradition, the oral Torah had softened it. And this immediately creates a problem for this religious lawyer. When he meditates upon this commandment of God, he knows he doesn't measure up. Love God with all my strength, with all my mind, all my heart, all my soul. I I can't do that. There's no give to this standard. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. God desires all of us, every part of us, all of our hearts. God is to be our supreme treasure. He's the one we are to daydream about when we have free time. His love is to astound us and make us break out in, break out in smiles even in the middle of troubled work projects. In your solitude, in your afflictions, in your deepest struggles, you are to run to Him as your beloved. When you fall away to sleep, He is to be the last thought in your mind, the first one when you wake up. You should be grumbling to leave His presence and longing to get back into it. If I've just described you now, come on up because you could finish the sermon. If I haven't described you, welcome to the human race because this command defeats all of us as it defeats the lawyer here. And what does he do? He's looking for wiggle room. He can't find wiggle room in what Jesus said. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? And so we get to the issue of scope. Who is your neighbor? What is the scope of this command to love your neighbor? How far does it go? And here Jesus answers in one of the most beautiful, most quoted, and most crushing parables in the history of human writing. Because Jesus wants to tell us, as he tells the lawyer, one thing. There are no limits. There is no one who is not your neighbor. Jesus here obliterates all of the limitations we want to put to the scope of this. Let's look at the ways we want to limit the scope. Firstly, the who. Who should I help? It's the actual question the lawyer asks. Jesus will go far beyond that in a moment, but he starts there. He talks about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a man, a certain man, generic man, everyday man, every person. Narratively, he wants all of us to fit there. Jesus also wants us to know that the root is the root every Jewish man would know. So it's probably any Jewish person because they're always taking the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. But you need to know it's a very dangerous road. It drops thousands of feet over a very short amount of time. It's winding, rocky, dangerous, forested. It is a known place for bandits. It's called the Pass of Blood as a nickname. And this man becomes the latest victim. Probably hiding in the trees somewhere or in the rocks, bandits rush him in a turn and they rob him, beat him, and leave him for dead. This happens all the time on the Pass of Blood. In fact, it's faked sometimes. 
so the travelers can get off their horses to help a supposedly hurt person and then themselves get attacked. You see, it's a dangerous road and a beaten person on the side of the road is a dangerous trap. So now put yourselves in the shoes of the people passing by. The shoes of the priest and the Levite. Would you stop? You're alone. It's dangerous. This is a known trap of bandits. Would you stop? Or would you pass by on the other side, giving a wide a berth as possible? Intriguingly, in the Jewish religious and, and civil structure, priests and Levites were the ones primarily responsible for merciful acts for Jewish people. But merciful acts aren't enough when danger is there. So who stops? A Samaritan. At the time of this writing, Samaritans and Jews hated each other with an intense hatred. The Jewish people had been depopulated through various imperial invasions, and their land had been resettled by Samaritans who were seen as thieves of their land. The Samaritans had created a religion based on Judaism, but also a sharp departure. It was like cult, heretics, thieves. But it's this man who stops. Who's your neighbor? Jesus says, even your hated enemy is your neighbor. Who? No limit. Second way that we will limit scope in our minds, when should we help? And when we think of the story, we have to ask ourselves, why did the Levite and why did the priest not stop? Because of the when as much as the who. Probably a Jewish man. But it's in the timing because they're like you and me. If it had been on a different road, they weren't alone and there was more safety, they probably would have stopped. But it's too dangerous now. It's too inconvenient now. And nobody would see our righteous acts. There's no benefit now. I was talking to someone uh, who was a part of a company that did one of these runs for charity that have been so famous in Toronto that clog up the DVP and the gardener every summer and every fall. And I asked, you know, how do you decide what to do and when to do it? And he said, well, it's pretty simple. We usually do it in the, in the summertime because it's warm enough to run, but we usually try and do it outside peak vacation time so people aren't inconvenienced by having to skip a perfect vacation time. Do you hear that? Our runs for charity are perfectly catered to our schedules and convenience. We're not so different. So you put yourself in the story. Would you stop? If you're a Samaritan, would you stop? He did what was dangerous. Jesus is saying there's no limit to when. When the need arises, the obligation rests on the people of God to respond to the need. Martin Luther King Jr., the great American, African-American civil rights leader, on the night before he was assassinated, gave one of his most famous speeches, the I've been to the mountaintop speech. In it, he talked about why he was continuing to lead this movement in light of growing 
incredible threats against his life. And he went to this passage, and this is what he said. He said, you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. Or that he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But when the good Samaritan came by, he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? To obliterate this question of when as a limitation, we need to reverse the question as MLK reminds us to. Stop asking what will happen to me if I help and start asking what will happen to them if I don't. No limitation on when. Third limitation we tend to put, how much help should I give? The extent of help. Look what he does. The Samaritan goes to him and says, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then put him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a horse. Brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So let's unpack this. You're on the pass of blood. There's a beaten man on the road. To help him, I get down off my mount. To help him, I bend down and bandage up his wounds. It takes time. I pour oil on his wounds and wine on his wounds. I risk my life. I turn my back to danger. I take time. I put him on my animal. I go back and find a place for him to stay. I pay for his stay. I stay a night. Next morning, I pay for more time. How many days? I've lost a day out of my life. I've endangered myself. It was costly, and it was healing. Medically and physically, he took care of his needs. He gave him shelter. He gave him money to keep staying there and get rested. Men and women, this is what we are called when we do gospel love. Whatever kinds of needs there are, we're called to meet them. This is a three-dimensional care food, shelter, health, enough to see the man well. This is the cost. So there are no limits to who. There are no limits to when. And there are no limits to how much. Hmm. So who, who can live up to this standard? If you're beginning to feel discouraged yet, I believe Jesus wants you to feel discouraged. This profound and befuddling parable is meant to confront you with an unconditional love of neighbors, a kind of barrier-breaking definition of mercy and justice that none of us can live in our own strength because the cost is too high. So get yourself back in this scene with Jesus and the lawyer and get yourself in the mind of the lawyer and say, what's he thinking right now? I believe... 
two tension points are arising in him, which are actually two pointers to the source of our ability to become good Samaritans. So we look at our second point. Now, the source of this love, Jesus is inviting, actually cornering, I submit to you, the Jewish lawyer into two places of terrible tension and confusion. The first one is, where am I in this story? Who do I identify with? Not the priest and the Levite. No, they failed their obvious duty to care for people because it was too costly. You see, they didn't have the power. Duty doesn't overcome danger. Duty does not overcome self-protection. Duty does not overcome self-interest. So he won't identify with them. Oh, he'll identify with the Good Samaritan, but he is really he's struggling to because the Samaritans are lawbreakers. They're land stealers. They're counterfeit religionists. They've co-opted our religion and turned it into a cult. I can't really identify with them. Correct. And you and I are called to do the same thing. We're called to realize the temptation to be the priest and the Levite in us, but to ultimately say, no, we don't want to stay there. We're called to look at the Good Samaritan and go, that's who I want to be, but no, I am not there. Right. Who's left for me to identify with? A beaten man, lying on the road. This is who Jesus wants the lawyer to be cornered into thinking about. Because it's that man, weak, helpless, robbed, destitute. It's that man who needs help. The only hope that man has as he lies there in his blood, as you lie there, is that someone will come, someone with the ability to help you, someone with a horse to take you to shelter, someone with the care and the resources to pay for your healing, someone who has the power to heal you and the compassion you don't have because you wouldn't do what that good Samaritan did. You wouldn't go and help an enemy. You wouldn't have the, the, the depth of love and compassion to help someone like that in a dangerous place like that. You would not do it. And so what Jesus says is, you can't become the good Samaritan until you first go and see yourself as the beaten man on the road. Because the first source of gospel love is to see yourself as desperate for help, not able to save yourself, needing the grace of someone else to come and rescue you. That's the first step. And that's what the gospel tells us to know about ourselves. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. This is you and me. The second source, the second source of gospel love is that second conundrum of confusion that Jesus creates. And it's not who am I in this story, it's who's Jesus in this story. Because Jesus said that the Samaritan had compassion for this man. The Greek word there is used 12 times in the New Testament, 12 times. Three times it's used in parables. This is one of the three. In the other two, it's used to describe some figure who's clearly God. So who do you think it's referring to here? 
In the non-parable, other nine times, every single time the word compassion is used by Jesus or about Jesus, the God-man. Let's put that data together and ask, who's the good Samaritan? Jesus is staring at that lawyer and saying, go be like him. You aren't like him. Who is like him? I am him. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who gave the stone tablets to Moses. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who was so holy that he struck down Uzzah when Uzzah dared to touch the ark with his bare hands. The lawyer was not looking into the eyes of some cult leader, some religious slacker. The lawyer was looking into the eyes of Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate good Samaritan who did not leave his horse to help a beaten man, but God came down out of heaven and became fully human. Being fully human, he entered Jerusalem in his final week on the foal of a donkey and then got down off that donkey so that he could climb onto a cross and become not just the good Samaritan, but the beaten man, beaten, robbed, tortured, and killed by evil people voluntarily. Why? So he could rescue you and I out of the depths of our sin, our guilt, and our misery. Are there any limits to his love? No. Who are we to God? We are people who defy him, people who decry him, people who ignore him, people who are naturally adversaries of him, and yet like the good Samaritan to the Jewish person, he transcended that. When did he do it? He did it in the midst of people hating him. How far did he go? He gave his own life. There are no limits to the love of the ultimate good Samaritan, Jesus. And so Jesus invites us in this familiar yet very challenging parable to do two things. To realize who we are and to come to Jesus for grace. Jesus is inviting the lawyer by cornering him as he invites us to see ourselves first as Levites and priests and then to see ourselves as wanting to be good Samaritans and then realizing that the pathway from going from being a priest and a Levite to being a good Samaritan goes right through the beaten man on the road. There you must land and there you must rest. You've defied God. You have made him your enemy. God owes you nothing but judgment, and yet this God became a scapegoat for you on the cross. He became a curse for us, says Galatians 3. He took all of your sin and bore it, and now he offers total forgiveness of your sins, eternal life with God free of charge. Men and women, only when you experience that, and some of you need to experience that anew, only when you've experienced that kind of free, unconditional grace pouring out to you, undeserved to you, only when that radical experience of the free, unmerited grace of God pours into you can you begin to think about loving another person the way the Good Samaritan loved his enemy. 
You cannot impart what you do not possess if you've never experienced this radical, ridiculous grace of Jesus. You can't give it away. Go to Jesus for a ridiculous experience of grace that will prepare your heart and fill you to be able to consider becoming a good Samaritan. And then secondly, go through Jesus' power and become good Samaritans. Once you've experienced the grace of Jesus, you now need the love, the compassion, and the courage of Jesus' Holy Spirit to empower you to follow him onto the Jericho Road. Men and women, many of us need to grow here. I know I do. In in, In accessing the power of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, we're often lazy or unbelieving. We're filled with fear or selfishness, desires for comfort. We need to become more heavenly-minded and filled with heaven's spirit if we're to be any earthly good. We need to be more filled up with the joys of communion with God. And you see, when you see a needy person and you are filled with the joy of communion with God, when you are filled with the spirit of grace, you will see them and you will see you in them. You will see them and go there, but for the grace of God go I. In the gospel of Jesus' grace, there is sufficient gospel love for you to go from being a priest and a Levite to seeing yourself as the beaten, broken person on the road to moving toward being a good Samaritan because you've passed from duty to grace to love. Applications. Go to Jesus for a fresh portion of his grace. See yourself clearly as the one needing his grace, fully undeserving, filled with sin and wrong. Secondly, see him clearly as the true good Samaritan who despite the fact that you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ rose for you. Christ is praying for you. Christ is empowering you because Christ loves you. Go to him for a renewal of grace and then go through him to love the city. Ask his Holy Spirit to give you his compassion, the compassion of Jesus for the people of Jesus, and obliterate those temptations. Stop limiting the who, the when, and the how much. How do you do that? Firstly, gather in community for prayer. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. Pray as a small group. Pray that God would obliterate your individual temptations. And God would give you such a heart that you begin to schedule in rhythms of going on the Jericho Road. Do it together if you need to. I think it would be great for small groups. We've been talking at at the Grace Center for Mercy and Justice about getting small groups vitally involved. Listen, I'm not asking you to go onto the streets all the time. There are massive pockets of misery and pain and need in the towers of these condos and apartments. There are people starving for love, for care. There are broken families everywhere. 
talk to Grace Center for Mercy and Justice. Rosemary has many resources to help you just begin to move out as a good Samaritan into the areas of need and start praying and dreaming of new ways to help the city and bless the needy. When we first got here at Grace Toronto, we didn't know what to do, but we were near Regent Park. And so um, we had people reach out and begin to connect with partners there, and we started a squads team. And then we began to have partnerships with Young Street Mission and Safe Families and Adam House. And then we began to create our own initiatives as we matured as a church, like Advocacy Clinic, which helps our neighbors here to advocate for themselves, for care, for medical help, for job applications, for taxes. And then we moved into helping to partner with the city and other nonprofits to create Tabitha House, a house, a place, a refuge to get young women off the streets. God can bring us. He has brought us this far. Let him bring us further. Go to Jesus for grace. Go through Jesus and his Holy Spirit in power to the city. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. And may it be, may it be that you make us a radically giving, radically going, radically courageous, radically generous blessing to our city. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'll answer just a couple of these questions for there are many. Uh, why are we not called to also love our neighbors with all our strength, mind, etc.? Loving your neighbor as yourself seems like it's dependent on self-love, which can fluctuate. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think that's also because you're bringing a technically sophisticated understanding of self-love, which really focuses also on our emotional approach to ourselves, which I don't really think was embedded in the biblical definition. The biblical definition of love is to seek out the best interest and flourishing of the person that is being loved. It's a pretty broad one. It doesn't get into the technicalities of how much you're caring and loving and feeling, enjoying yourself. It just talks about your basic self-interest, your basic desire for yourself to flourish. And given that much more broad definition, I think loving your neighbor as yourself really works. Because you always, even when you hate yourself, you want to be better. Even when you're fighting yourself or condemning yourself, you're wanting yourself to flourish. And that's the point of this definition of loving your neighbor. Great question. Does the uh, word neighbor imply physical proximity? Um, Okay, there are like six other questions in here. Also, ability to access the people we are helping. Yes, um, neighbor here implies the ability to help and the actual intersection of you with that neighbor, uh, usually. So, It can also mean, because of technology now, that we're intersecting by the internet and we're intersecting globally. But as you know, one of the difficulties of applying this now is that I can go online and find 15,000 global needs in about an hour. Uh, maybe not quite 15,000 an hour, but it's, it, it becomes exhausting and you can get compassion fatigue. So usually what you are recommended to do is to, to start local. 
Start getting involved and then see how that changes you and develops you. Be ready to think globally, but always be ready to act locally and globally. Okay. We will finish with that, and I'll ask Tark to come up for the response time. Let me pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your grace. May it be that we become that kind of people and that we show you to be that kind of God, for truly you are deeply beautiful, unimaginably lovely, gloriously holy. In Christ's name, amen.